Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. How's it going today? It's going well, Tom. And how are you? I am doing well. Uh, summer is in full swing in Chicago, so we're alternating between extreme heat and weird cold. Today's one of the weirdly colder days. I mean, it's in the 70s, but it feels weirdly cold, which I think is something that only Chicago can really pull off properly. But um, yeah. Um, Today we're talking about my uh, heart hemmed in by uh, Marie NDA, and um, that was your recommendation. And uh, Lori, what the hell is this book? (laughs) (laughs) That is a really good question. When I was um, rediscovering it on preparation for this podcast, and this would have been like my third or fourth time reading it. We actually did this book. Um, for the Interabang, um, my bookstores, uh, in-store book club. Um, and that had some mixed reaction. I think that it was perhaps a little too weird for, um, (laughs) for most people. Um, and it is a really weird book. Um, there is an awful lot going on in this book, but, an awful lot of what is kind of very hard to define. You're kind of left scratching your head quite a bit and thinking what, what the hell is happening? It's not so much. I think that it's tricky from a stylistic point of view. Um, I mean, it's the narrative I think is, is pretty straightforward. Um, you know, pretty basic. There's a lot of, there's a lot of dialogue in it. Um, so I don't think it's a particularly tricky read if you are willing to just kind of roll with it and and kind of just withhold, you know, any sense of potential reality for what the characters are describing or how they're reacting or what they think that they're seeing and just kind of let it roll over you. And, um, I don't know. I really, um, I really enjoy, um, everything by Marie and Daya that I've, that I've read. Um, I think now that I've read most of her work that's been translated into English, my heart hemmed in is maybe my second favorite of hers. Um, and it's published by a small press, um, two lines, out of California, which is also affiliated with the Center for Translation. There's a, there's a novel that she's uh, had published by Knopf uh, in English translation, um, and that novel is called La Divine, and I think that one's my favorite. But there are similarities in her novels with this kind of, I don't know, Tom, I don't know whether you'd call it surrealism, magic realism. What what, what do you think? Um, I was doing a, I, I try not to do too much review reading before we have these conversations. I kind of want to come in, you know, with my reactions. But with this one, I was just kind of 
as you said, there's so much going on um, and there, there's so many layers to it. That I was kind of curious what all, what all others said about it. And one, one quote I saw on like the Wikipedia, I mean, there's an entire, which is interesting, an entire Wikipedia entry for this one novel, um, which usually isn't the case. Like it might, it might have like, there might be an entry, but there won't be like this long discussion of plot and character and all that. But one, a reviewer referred to it as a, uh, a modern nightmare. And I think in terms of like, you know, surrealism, magical realism, or even just how you put it about how you have to let it roll over you. I mean, I think that sort of description, and if you don't want to go too hard into the nightmare, I mean, I think the dream-like qualities of it are probably the most pronounced element stylistically of um, what kind of sets the book apart in a way. Because it, you're right, it isn't like, it is like she's doing a ton of pyrotechnics in her prose or anything like that. Um, she's very willfully, I think, and deliberately keeping you in the dark about a lot uh, and a lot of what the character Nadia does know but doesn't want to say or, or at least admit. But yeah, it's there is an atmosphere to this novel that is really something remarkable um, and I could totally see that being very unsettling for a lot of folks uh, <laughs> entering into a book group discussion. Yeah, I think that um, one of the one of the recurring kind of motifs of this particular book is Nadia's lack of clarity. They there's a lot, an awful lot of fog. Like they're they're living in Bordeaux um, in France, and it seems like. Every day is foggy. Perhaps that's the way it is in Bordeaux. I unfortunately have never been to Bordeaux. Um, I, I do like their wine, though. Um, well, or, or fortunately, because if the Bordeaux, if it if it is in fact the Bordeaux that's described in this novel, I don't know that I want to go there. <laughs> but exactly. But not only is there fog, but she's always messing with her glasses. Um, there's there's always this kind of you know, her glasses are on crooked, they're screwed up, um, she doesn't have them on, now she has them on, she sees, she can't see very well. So this lack of clarity is definitely a theme, but also there's this moral, I don't know, do I want to say ambiguity? Um, not even really that ambiguous, although... It is kind of interesting, I think, the way that Ndaye kind of kind of starts out at the very beginning of the novel with the the narrator uh, Nadia and her um, her husband Anger, both of whom are school teachers at the local school, and they're walking home together from school, and they're just people are reacting to them in a very hostile and suspicious manner, um, almost in a, in a resentful or, or violent way. And so you, you see at, at first my reaction as a reader is like, Oh, this is horrible. What's wrong with this community? Why are they being so nasty to this couple? But then as you get further and further on, you begin to see like, Oh, this couple they're really nasty. I mean, they're, they're horrible people. Not that that means that the community is justified in some of the horrible things that we perceive that they've done to this couple, but um, 
but this isn't, these are not nice people generally. No. Um, I actually want to, on the topic, uh, just circling back to, um, the descriptions of Bordeaux, uh, there's a really short paragraph, page 42, if you have your copy, um, that I just think, I mean, th- and this is what I think is so impressive of how she writes, but the street is completely dark, no light shining at any window. Every few yards, the pale, silvery gleam of the streetlights illuminates the falling rain so fine it can only be seen inside that halo. And that just really tight paragraph, she sets up sort of the foreboding nature of it, that there are no lights in any window, that it's rainy, that there's just this noirish quality to it, but it's noir tinged with again i don't know a nightmare or at least like some serious like more the foreboding side of noir and nadia and anjay's experience at the start really does reflect and throughout quite frankly really does reflect that it does reflect that notion of like a dark foreboding and uncertainty as to why why suddenly they're being treated the way they are after having been part of the community for as long as they have um and respected or at least that's how Nadia views things at the outset. And as you say, through mostly through her own thoughts and her own reflections on how people are reacting, what they're saying to her, she kind of reveals more and more that they are really, yeah, not very nice people, really quite terrible. And that in particular, there, there's, a, there's a period in the novel where it seems more like Angers is perhaps the lead in the duo, but, it, and maybe... He remains a not very pleasant figure in also many respects, but Nadia's culpability in it and in some ways what she brings out of him seems to really start to take center stage, especially in the last third where, and I, frankly, when she leaves his side, um, it becomes even clearer who she is, what she is uh, as a person and um, how that is being reflected and how that's playing out in everyone around her and how they see and view and react to her. But that's also where I think the novel goes even further into the surrealist elements. Um, it really starts to take some turns the moment that she leaves, the moment she leaves Bordeaux. Yeah, just to, to mention, and um, I'm embarrassed, I didn't know this before I looked it up to check the pronunciation, but Angers means angel in French. I never took French classes um, I was a Russian major and was afraid to touch any other languages because I was like, if I can ever master Russian, which I never did too terribly well, um, then that's, uh, I don't want to confuse myself with other languages, which is probably a stupid, stupid attitude to take. But yeah, it's interesting that his name is Angel and he's very far from an angel, but you're, you're right, I think, in that the, the further on you go in the book, his badness kind of kind of pales in comparison to his wife's. Um, another thing just to, just to note off the top is that I think that there is, and it's, it's never, or it's not very explicit, maybe a few little bits, but I feel throughout this whole book that there is kind of a racist menace mm-hmm. um, here. And Perhaps what she's kind of trying to um, trying to show us here is some of the ways that if you are a dark person living in a majority white world, there are all kinds of subtle and not so subtle ways that that 
people react to you that um, that are that are threatening, even if they're not um, an explicit threat. At the very start of the novel, I frankly rather assumed that both Anjay and Nadia were black. The way the novel works, there's a lot of coding in there for and a ton of work put in on um, physical appearance, uh, especially Nadia's. Uh, throughout the novel, Nadia gains weight and it becomes, you know, ever more re- remarked upon. Uh, her car- like Over the course of a few days, or at least that's sort of the sense the novel gives, a cardigan she wears uh, just stops fitting. She like goes to being able to fully button it up to only, you know, and it's a little tight to only a few buttons. So now she can't even button it at all. So now it has to go around her waist. And that even starts to move into an even stronger, especially in the last third of the novel, body horror com- component to it with something very explicitly demonic taking place uh, inside of her body. But about the halfway point, it became very clear to me that at the very least, Angers is not black, but that's also the same moment where Nadia's daughter, uh, granddaughter's name starts to appear and that she has a very hard time that the granddaughter's name is uh, Suhar. And that's at least for me, the moment where I'm like, Oh, she might be passing. And Nadia's relationship to her son and her ex-husband and her past, her family, is really where I think you start to see the rot at the core of her personality. Um, up to this point, there's been some some discussion of educational philosophy that Anjay has that she doesn't really like very much, but she goes along with that is frankly like obscene in terms of how it views school teachers, how it views students and, and, and the like. But I don't know that there, there's a philosophical consistency there that seems like it's just, you know, frankly, it just it strikes as right as right wing. Her rejection of her family and her past and who she is seems like it's the it's the wound that um, that's putrefying from the inside out with Nadia and the one that she can't escape from. Should we go a little bit into some of the some of the plot? I mean, we're 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 covering quite a bit of it in this conversation, but maybe we should get a little bit more explicit about how it flows. Yeah, maybe like because of the putrefaction, especially issue that you just brought up. I think the first one of the first um, scenes that we get of this of this putrefaction, this rot rotting, is um, in the opening scene. So. Um, we talked about how the book opens when Nadia and Anger are leaving their joint workplace, the school, and they're walking home. And Nadia notices that Anger is struggling to keep up with her. Um, and this she's noticing along with noticing the hostile stares of people that they're passing and people not wanting to make on eye contact with them or if they do like sneering at them and when they finally get to their apartment and she opens the door Anjay kind of uh, partially collapses and it turns out that he has been um, stabbed in some way with some kind of instrument um, like around the area of his liver and he's bleeding quite profusely and Weirdly, um, he goes into the bedroom and 
no one even tries to clean his wounds for, I think, at least 48 hours. Um, so as you can imagine, by the time that, that Nadia does think about, well, you know, we, sh- he sh- we should clean him up. I thought that his adult daughters who came over to see him would have done that. Well, I went to the pharmacy to buy some, some bandages and some alcohol. Um, but turns out that they didn't. And she like pulls back the, the sheets on the bed that he's lying on their bed. And there's this horrible smell um, arises and his wound is all like black and crusty and pussy. And that scene of this ever rotting <laughs> wound in Anjay's side just kind of, um, it kind of just progresses and gets a little more um, vivid and, and worse uh, as, as the book goes on. Um, and, and I think one of the things that's quite interesting is that, um, Angers, you, you, everyone thinks that Angers is going to die from this wound, um, because it seems so very severe and he's refusing medical help. Um, and a neighbor that they have been very disdainful of, this is kind of a humorous thing, I think, maybe it's not meant to be humorous, but, there's a downstairs neighbor that when they have to enter into their apartment building, they always pass by his apartment and he's a retired gentleman, ends up being a retired school teacher. And they don't really know him, but they disdain him and they don't respect him. And part of the reason seems to be that he is retired. And there's a lot of discussion in the first, you know, 20 or 25 pages of the book that, you know, we just can't, we just can't abide by someone who would, you know, give up the passion of their vocation and just retire. It just seems, it's, it just seems unworthy and indecent. And, um, but anyway, uh, his name is, is, um, Mr. Noget and, and he kind of, um, comes to their aid. He knows somehow what has happened to Angers and he, you know, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help. And I know that you guys have, have been, um, awful toward me. Um, but I want you to know that I'm going to be here for you always. Um, and I'm going to help. So he kind of moves into their place, so to speak. And one of the other kind of really interesting elements and also kind of humorous is that, as the book progresses, we've got Angers uh, bedbound um, with this ever worsening, rotting wound. We have Nadia just kind of, kind of obsessed in her her own paranoid um, kind of world, trying to figure out why um, she deserves to be rude and indignant to Mister Noget, and can't understand why Angers is now kind of being nice to him. But one of the things that Noget does is he starts making all all of these really rich, caloric-heavy meals for both Anger and Nadia. And the depictions of their gluttony um, during this time and their, like, wanting to eat all this rich food and ability to eat all this rich food when it appears that someone, one of them is dying of this festering, 
pus-filled, <laughs> infected, deep wound is just kind of, it's, I, I guess you would say it's it's definitely the body horror thing. Yeah, and as as Noje is feeding them, Nadia puts on weight, um, and weight at what eventually takes on supernatural qualities in its speed. But um Andre keeps getting thinner. Like, and he's he's not defecating, he's not urinating, he's being fed all this all this rich food and and Noje goes to some pains to explain like the sourcing of the materials of the food that, and they're coming, it's coming from all over France from, you know, the, like the butters from Normandy and the uh, cheese is from, is from somewhere else. And, and this is from a, and I make my own croissants and my own bread. I wake up an hour early every morning to make sure I have it, which I think has some, political racial overtones to it quite frankly but yeah it's it's but but so as all this food is like going into Anje, like it's only coming out via the wound via via the pussing of the wound and nadia is i mean there's this incredible inconsistent it's interesting that the back half back third of the novel while much more in the the feeling of like almost a supernatural nightmarish mode is in some ways a little bit more logically consistent in terms of motivations and decisions and actions. Like Nadia is moving in a single direction. Um, the people around her are following suit. They everyone has a thing they're doing, and they're not constantly changing their mind or you know backtracking, cutting against a previous thought or a previous action. In this period in the apartment with Noje and Ange. And maybe that's a bit of a, a a sound wordplay going on there as well between those two names. Nadia can go from one moment, you know, being very pleased with what Noje is offering them. And then the very next sentence, just decrying him and decrying his presence there. She'll whisper in Anje's ear, are, are you afraid of him? And Anje will thunder at her as much as he can thunder. You know, how could you think that he's the only thing keeping me alive? In the very next scene, she he asked her not to leave, not to leave him alone with Noje. Like it's just this constant wrong footing of of Nadia of the reader that really kind of I mean it, it emphasizes the the atmosphere and the kind of claustrophobia that the city wrapped in this fog really seems to have. You know, especially for Nadia, she's trying to navigate it. I mean, the very city streets change on her. She ends up in places that she shouldn't be able to end up walking down the street she's walking down, or the street ends up being miles long when her memory of it is that it's only a mile. And th- th- which also plays into this notion of ownership of the city. Anje is from there. He grew up in the old town. She, it comes out, is from a housing project in the suburbs. Um, but she spends a lot of time talking about how well she knows the city. I've walked everywhere and then finds herself lost all the time in the city. It's interesting, I think, too, that this notion, at least my interpretation, is that this this food that Noje is is preparing and we do get some opulent detail of the dishes that he's making and uh, i'll just note as an aside that um and ia also has a book called the chef that two lines press published and it's it's very good as well but there's if you like these kind of depictions of food without the the 
pus-filled wound next door, um, <laughs> you'll like that book too because she definitely has um, a very a very good ear and and I guess hand for writing about about food and rich French food in particular. Um, but yeah, th- this food is not is not nourishing them. It's actually corrupting them. I think um, when when it's when we start out, Ange and Nadia at least we're led to believe from Nadia's perspective that they're pretty simpatico and, you know, they've, they've lived quite a nice existence together. They both, you know, really value their, their jobs as teachers and they, you know, they kind of have the same habits and, and just kind of a, a rather smooth way of life before this kind of, community hostility seems to invade their lives but it almost it almost feels like Nerge through his presence and through his food is is driving a wedge between them and um certainly if you think about what happens as you said in the last third of the book when the obesity on Nadia's part ends up being you know almost maybe literally a, a demonic possession it it does it does feel like she's that he's corrupted her in some way i think through the food well but at the same time Angers does appear at the end of the novel she assumed he was dead but he's there and he's healthy and he's thin and he just has a scar like a pink scar from where the where the attack took place um, and I also just want to quickly add that the when she finally sees the wound, it isn't just like he was stabbed. Like they gouged his flesh out. Like whatever whatever the attack was, there is a savagery and almost a bestial nature to it, where she wonders at what kind of tool could even have been used for that. Um, I think that gouging, that attempt to like remove flesh, and then him progressively losing more flesh as he's fed all this rich. Um, French food. I, I don't know enough about French politics and French literary culture and all that, but I, I think some things are, are perhaps be, being stated about, I don't know. I mean, there's also an element to Noget of inserting himself into their lives while also saying that he was a school teacher, which Nadia very much doubts. But everyone that she mentions him to knows who he is. And He's very famous. He's very respected. And there's an awe, like the idea that he is the one taking care of them um, simultaneously means that they're in good hands. But at the same time, um, maybe not. Nadia at one point um, visits her um, son's former lover, who is a high ranking official slash police policeman, sort of. I mean, that, that isn't made totally clear to me. I mean, he's certainly a civil servant of some kind, but there did seem to be some kind of police powers associated with it. But when she mentions that Noget is the one taking care of her, taking care of them, Lantan or Lantan goes, oh, wait, uh, Robert Victor Noget, like knows his full name is like, wow. And, well, then that, that should be all right then. And she, I, I didn't, I don't think I actually noted it um, to quickly refer to it, but she makes some question like, oh, then we're going to be okay. And he almost basically says, well, I didn't say that. It's like more that, if Noget is involved, no one else is going to get involved. Um, but that doesn't mean this is going to turn out well for for you. In a way, it doesn't. Um, 
she okay so eventually nadia leaves she abandons anjay to nojay and she decides that she's going to go see go and live with her son that she needs to get away and that once anjay she keeps saying that once anjay is healthy enough she'll send for him and he'll travel and this is how we'll do it and she takes this nightmare trip to get to Toulon, where her son uh, is now living, and she has not seen her son in years. Her son, um, what her son was in a relationship with Lantan, broke it off mostly because uh, her ex Nadia's ex husband disapproved of their son being in a homosexual relationship, um, and has now married a woman named Yasmin and has a daughter named Suhar that she's never met. She's never met the wife. She's never met the granddaughter. Her son lives far away. And when she eventually, I mean, when she eventually gets to, to her son, he's with a completely different person, a woman named Wilma, whom she, he mentioned in a letter that he sent to her, kind of letting her know that, well, Noje lets the son know in advance of what her plans are. There, there's so many weird sort of, I keep using the word supernatural, but yeah, like, but like interventions that Noje is capable of that the, the, that just sort of take place through, throughout that really throw this into a very bizarre landscape uh, of a novel. So as I said, she left, she goes to Toulon. We'll get a little bit into what takes place with her son, but towards the, at the very end of the novel, Noje appears again. Um, she briefly speaks to him on the phone, but then he's in this village where, um, where the the son lives and he's giving a lecture at the school and when she she goes to the lecture and talks to him and gets you know under the auspices of getting a book signed and this has got to be the creepiest book signing moment i've i've ever heard of her encountered he leans forward to her during their conversation and says did you give birth to the thing i put inside of you and she says no absolutely not and we later find out that she sort of sort of did after a fashion but um wow what a what a what a fascinating character she created in Noje. i mean there there are so many different ways that i th- and this is one of the strengths of this novel there are so many ways that you can take it like in, the allegory doesn't even really quite quite cover it um there's so much happening and so many layers to to what she's what she's discussing that um I, yeah yeah i I get why you chose it as a book group discussion title, but you almost killed that group, Lori. I mean, I, I could see a lot of people not coming back after this one. It was rough, and it was soon after we opened. And I really, our book club is going and blowing now. And I can't say that we don't read some funky things because we do. And it makes me really happy that the group, um, you know, of 30 or 35 people that we regularly have every month is is really open to reading um, unusual and unknown literature and a lot of things in translation. But yeah, this one, it was not a smart move for me to have made uh, (laughs) the first uh, six months of the store being open because people were like, WTF, like, what is this about? Uh, And what's this book club going to be like? But getting back to your point about Noje putting this demon thing in in Nadia that she gives birth to again I'm, I'm wondering whether Anjay is is the angel although he's not you know what you would think of as like the the, the pure innocent white 
Angel. Anjay turns out to be quite racist too. There's the scene with the Chinese neighbor, but Noje might be the the devil, and he is he is tempting them with all of this rich food and their sin is the gluttony that they are just like ingesting this food like as fast as he can make it and and now they now Nadia ultimately is you know she she's like the this the sin becomes comes to fruition becomes a a, a thing that she has to expel from her body it turns out i don't know what it is the description is like some black slimy thing that she expelled and it's scattered across the floor. Um, yeah, described described as it, it could look like an eel, but it may also have fur. Um, so some sort of like demon platypus in a way is what it almost sounds like, quite frankly. Um, but if if Noje is the devil, then Wilma, I think, is the devil Triss or the the female um, devil. To me, uh, and and just to to back up in case um, people are losing the thread, Wilma is the woman who Nadia's son Ralph is now living with. She's not the the mother of Ralph's child, but she's a OBGYN appropriately whom Ralph, who's also a doctor, is living with. And to me, she seems like a vampire. She's like a vampress. Um, she's, she, um, she only eats meat. She's gotten Ralph obsessed with guns and hunting, and there's these animal pelts all over her house. And it appears that she doesn't sleep. There's a point where Nadia's in so much pain that she goes in the middle of the night and knocks on Wilma's, Wilma and Ralph's door and... Uh, Wilma just appears fully dressed and very much awake. And Ralph is like poking his head up from under the sheets, like obviously very much asleep. I don't know. What did you think of Wilma? Oh yeah. A very strong succubus vibes coming Uh off, coming off of that one. And also of course, like when she, when she is first introduced and described, I mean, there's this real sense of like beauty to her. But then again, the body the bodyliness kind of kicks in where she's striking and has this sort of uh, I don't know like thin you know gamine figure, but very thick calves, like almost too strong. And the way, I mean, I was already maybe because I was already already thinking succubus, demonic, whatever. But the second or third time that um, Nadia notes uh, the size of the muscles on her legs, I immediately thought of like goat legs, like that, that that's what's emerging from underneath. Um, uh. Which is also just a, a remarkable thing that uh, she pulls off is that without, without drawing out all the possible connections, they're all woven into, into the prose, into the descriptions, into, into the feel of the book. I mean, it's a, it's a really masterfully done just masterfully done novel. Nadia's time or life with Ralph and Wilma is certainly the part of the novel that has the most overt horror elements to it i would say um it was definitely 
leaning in that direction in the earlier part. But when they pick her up from the boat, um, she's already had this very strange journey to get to them is taken on by a traveling companion who who knows that she is one that Nadia is one of the outcasts, one of the people that the rest of the world does not treat well. And this is this is a, a recurring thing. This is basically what Nadia and Anjay are struggling with at the beginning of the novel is that they are now part of this uh, unelect, if you will. And they don't know why. And they and Nadia starts to, as she's the one moving out and about in the world, starts to recognize other people as being like her, uh, as being part of this outcast pariah group. But she travels with this woman, Natalie, and they have to take a car to actually make their boat on time. It happens that they're, they sit next to each other on the train and it happens they're going to the same place. Um, but while they're driving there, um, and it's unclear if she's actually awake or not. Natalie's driving and Nadia looks over at her and sees a skull staring back at her. I mean, there's almost this care on travel into the underworld component to it. And then when she when she finally like suggests that maybe she falls back asleep or or something along those lines, when she next looks at Natalie, Natalie's back to herself is is, you know, the young woman uh, again that she was traveling with. But they get off the boat. She can't find Natalie when they're getting off of the boat, but she meets up with Ralph. And Ralph, when Ralph comes up in the earlier portions of the novel, Nadia just sing in a way sings his praises. Everything except for the um, name that he gives the granddaughter. She she's, she talks about him as her angel and how much she loved it when he would run to her when she came home and jump into jump onto her and lock his legs around her waist and how she'd have to make a scowly face in order to get him to let go. Which, as that memory continues to recur throughout the novel it becomes clearer and clearer that she hated that he did that and that she would actively try and scare him to get him to let go and to drive him off she also says that she loved lantan his lover far more than she loved ralph um and she had no problem with her son being in this relationship but uh her ex-husband kind of put it you know forced it to end but ralph visits the ex-husband I mean, Ralph makes it very clear that he despises his mother, that she is poison in some way. And he even says at one point that um, he tells her, Ralph tells his mother that he, you know, that he was cuckled by Nadia because she and Lanton were kind of almost, I don't know that they ever really touched each other, you know, in a sexual kind of way, but that they were like constantly flirting and... They they had a very close relationship, which is borne out by the by when Nadia goes to see Lanton because she needs to get a visa and traveling papers um, to go see Ralph. But yeah, it's um that's not a good relationship that Ralph and Nadia have for sure. And I can't. I'm trying. I just. I mean, I just read this. So I should be able to place this better. But is it Ralph the one that says that it's Nadia, who's killing Angers, like that. It's her presence. Yeah, it's her presence is what is corrupting and killing him. And I believe he does this in Wilma's presence because he is a bit different away from Wilma. So, so as we move into this more House of Horrors um, component of the novel, um, 
they they pick her up at the air, at the um, from the boat. They drive up, um, and and it's this beautiful harbor. And they start driving and they drive up the side of a mountain and they end up in the shadow of the mountain. Can't see the sea. Um, it's cold. It's, it's, it feels very isolated. Dracula's castle. Absolutely. Especially because, especially because the village they live in only has a few other structure. Like they're living in this, it, 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 it's the house is described in a way that makes it sound like, I don't know, like uh, a Le Corbusier that um, had all the charm ripped out of it. And like, just a, a slab that like, I mean, like a coffin, quite frankly, leaning back into the Dracula and vampiric elements of it. Um, and, but it's the largest house in the village. And the village only has a few other small gray hu- gray huts, almost is how they're described, and a church that, from the way it, it's briefly mentioned, sounds like it's maybe never used any longer. And in this house, there are hunting trophies everywhere. There are masks on the wall, um, that these leather masks that look bizarre. And then <laughs> when um, Nadia travels with um, Ralph to, um, for him to go to the hospital and do his rounds at, at Mulma's behest, and Nadia notes that Ralph is always supervised. Someone is always with, with him, that Wilma's in some way trying to keep him under, under her thumb. When they leave, um, women from the village are there, but they all have the same eye makeup as Wilma. And Ralph mentions that the, that one of the specialties of the village is that they make masks of your loved ones so that they can always be looking at you. And Nadia races back inside and immediately finds two masks, one of a younger woman looking very sad and one of a young child looking brilliantly happy. And of course, you know that this is Yasmin and Suhar represented in some capacity. It is creepy as hell, Lori. Like that portion is dark. But Suhar's okay. Suhar's okay. So it, it is. It is through. I think um, Nadia's descriptions uh, and her memories of her time with her son that I think we really start to see the cracks in her presentation to the world that she is this that she is this upstanding person or or even that Angers, you know, reprehensible nature is not. It's not just her mimicking it, that she has something rotten at her core as well. Because it also comes out that she told Angers that her parents were dead. Um, and they're not. They. This is where you really start to see that she is trying to hide something about herself. That she is running away from something and that the cuckolding that you mentioned uh, that Ralph accuses her of when it comes to Lantan, I mean, is also made very clear that she pursued Angers, that she saw him as the next step up, another step away from who she was. Uh, Her ex-husband grew up with her. Uh, She she knew him from um, the suburb that they they lived in. And so this was her way of cutting that part of her life out even further. Yeah. And her husband, her ex-husband, I think was a, uh, who was Ralph's dad, was a electrician i think he's definitely blue collar yes very much so and and she even when she goes back i mean and she screwed this guy in the divorce like she she made she got the right lawyer to make it seem as though he was the cause for the failure of the marriage um she got she was getting alimony from him she got uh control the apartment that they lived in and now became solely hers but he still lives there but hasn't paying her rent in a while when she goes to visit him at this apartment like the words proletarian to describe his aesthetic come out and it's just like you really start to see 
as she as you as the social circles expand for who Nadia is interacting with, you get a real sense for the nasty piece of work she happens to be as well. Um, So she's cut out her parents. She hasn't seen them in 35 years. And when she goes on these rounds with um, Ralph, um, she encounters uh, Natalie, the woman she traveled with again. But she also takes off. And as she's walking through the village, she hears a voice singing a nursery rhyme. And she can't believe what the voice sounds like because it sounds like her mother. And it sounds like her mother singing in that language that Nadia no longer knows. But she obviously knows it well enough to know the rhyme and know what's going on. But she claims not to really be able to understand it any longer. And this freaks her out. So, And she... uh, there's always this constant need for her to use the bathroom, which is setting up whether she's pregnant or not. Again, we're going into a lot of the body horror there. She finds her way into a bar and in the bar, she can hear men speaking again, that language. And she hears a distinct voice laughing and knows that it's her father. And as she wanders back up the hill after using the toilet, she goes by the house where she heard the, the nursery run from looks in and she sees her parents she sees a toddler and she sees Ralph feeding the toddler. Um, and Ralph looks at her and is briefly smiling because he's clearly with his daughter and then is shocked and angry that his mother has found out this secret. So do you think, uh, and I couldn't find this town that Ralph is supposed to um, live in, and I guess the parents now do too, because Ralph has brought them, um, has paid for them to come um, live near him, but not in his weird house with Wilma, which is probably a good thing. But um, but do you think it's um, Galicia, or I couldn't I couldn't quite gather. You know, I know that they had to take a boat to get there from Bordeaux. I know it's like you have to travel, you know, up into the to the mountains. I wasn't quite sure, though, you know, with this with this other language and, and what that might signify. Or maybe I'm looking too much for a factual basis in it. I, I did look up the name Suhar, and it is primarily used in Morocco, um, which would make sense given Morocco, you know, Morocco's proximity to France um, and connections to France. So I'm almost wondering if it's either a dialect that they're speaking um, or um, Arabic quite frankly. And she knows it. She knows it well enough to recognize it and probably can remember what a song was from her childhood, but claims not to, or can't any longer um, speak to it. Though she does, she does speak to her parents, though mostly in French, it seems. And, and this is one of the things, I mean, if, if they did not nail down that this was Bordeaux or some sort of phantasmagal, phantasmagorical version of Bordeaux, it could have been any town anywhere at the opening. Um, and if they hadn't said that she was traveling to Toulon, it could have been anywhere on the coast. Um, and I think it's still, I think in a way, it still could be any city in you know in the heart of France or some country, and it could be anywhere on the coast. I mean, I think. That's one of the things that um, India is, uh, some of the fun she's having with it is keeping it, grind, grounding it enough that there are reference points, but also still having her druthers to like, I mean, you you could even say that this is, you know, a divine comedy of some kind, right? Or, or a purgatorical ex, you know, experience. I think I may have made up a word there just then, purgatorical. Yeah, um, but... I, <sighs> 
But if I had, maybe it's Sardinia. I mean, Sardinia is a big enough island and mountainous that you could you could get a amazing um, harbor and then uh, a cold a cold mountain climate. This is this again is a recurrent theme um, and and one that is especially pronounced in in La Divine, uh, where you've got a woman who's ashamed of her background and tries to do everything she can to reject it and to to ignore and more than ignore to push aside and negate uh her humble roots who's trying to be something um more cultured more cosmopolitan than than where she came from um but still can't you know i guess there are lots of examples of this in literature where people try to to block out who their parents were who their family was or or where they came from but you know it always seems to come come back to to bite them um in the end yeah i I think in some ways it's it's also just it's the full rejection that's the issue i mean it's this it's the running away and the obfuscating and the hiding that is really i don't know in some ways i feel like the 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 issue for Nadia, that she's cut out a part of herself. And I mean, there are descriptions of her early marriage with Angers where they're, they, it seems like they're enjoying life. They're out on the water, they're um, driving around. Um, but then their later life and the more recent life, they laugh at people who buy expensive cars. They refuse to the, the food that Noje feeds them. They would never do for themselves because that seems like an extravagance. They, they become these, I mean, they're like self-flagellating in, in, in a way. And that's, and that's 100% what one of the bits of Angers philosophy of teaching that comes out and comes through is that there should be a, a sense of self-denial for teachers. He has this line where it says like teachers should know there was always something else they could have done that maybe they would have loved more, but teaching was what they chose to do. This, which is a really like almost fascist sensibility of like subjugate, subjugating oneself to the needs of the civil of the state of a, the the glory of being a civil servant at the cost of everything that you love it's like my, my god but again that doesn't really match up with how they were initially and perhaps even attracted nadia to him i think it's interesting how you know you read this book from beginning to end and now i've read it three or four times and I'm still confused um, and not in a frustrated way, but in a, a pleasantly puzzled way um, is, is Nadia just a horribly unreliable narrator. I mean, she's telling us that Anjay has a absolutely 100% fatal wound that no one in the right mind should survive and doubly so would not survive without medical treatment, which he apparently never gets. And no one ever really takes care of this wound in a hospital or even at home, but he does, he does survive. He's fine in the end. And in fact, he's like, has a new girlfriend, you know, and he's happy, like you said, and he's walking on the beach holding hands with her and, or I think both can be true. What is going on here with, why this community is suddenly 
suspicious and hostile towards this pair, Anger and Nadia, and other people, as you said, that it becomes apparent that there are these there are these group of outcasts. And I'm probably grasping at straws here. Um, but this book was published in France in 2007. And it it calls me to wonder whether there isn't some unmentioned event that's happened, maybe like a 9-11, where suddenly everyone that looks a little darker or maybe looks um, Arab or from a, an Arab or Middle Eastern place is now suddenly under suspicion or people are, um, are, are untrusting of them or just have a, an uneasy feeling to them around them that's totally unjustified, but that something, something big has happened to cause the community to kind of view these otherwise pretty innocuous people as, as a threat. I mean, so to your first point about like, you know, both being true, I think all of it can be true. I mean, I think this could be an unreliable narrator. I think this could be someone uh, suffering an extreme mental crisis. I think it could be she fell into a dystopia without realizing that she was walking through a wormhole. Um, it could be a tale of demonic possession. I mean, I think, I think, I think that's one of the absolute strengths of this novel is I think no matter how many times you read it, a new interpretation will present itself and will be as valid as the previous ones or the ones that are competing right alongside of it. And I think that's a really hard thing to pull off that um, she absolutely crushed here. Um, it makes me very excited to check out her other work because this is the first one, first novel of hers that I I've that I've read. But as far as its place in in, in France, uh, French history, France, French politics, I mean, France is a multicultural society that like, I mean, and I, I'm, I'm by no means an expert on, on French politics or, or culture, but I mean, it strikes me that there, there are consistent flashpoints in terms of what it means to be French, what assimil assimilation versus um, integration, um, casting aside one's, one's identity um, in order to be truly French. I mean, for the love of God, the the National Front continues to to pull well in um, French presidential elections and even in some of their uh, municipal elections. And I think I saw um, that a far right candidate um, won election in um, her hometown um, not long before this book came out. So I mean, I think I think. In some ways, she is pulling at a lot of the competing claims within French society. I mean, I think that that's also why, I mean, Angers being as racist as he is, and in some and maybe perhaps fascistic in his political beliefs, is married to a woman who's clearly of North African descent. You know, I mean, that's a competing claim there. I think a lot of that is 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 part of it, and is what is, yeah striving with uh, all the other elements of the novel uh, to really kind of stake their claim. And it could, it could also just be that, just this idea of all these ideas, all of these notions, all of these, all this pressure trying to find its release point all at the same time and that creating a real, a real pressure cooker. Um, 
But also on just on the topic of pariah status, I mean, I think that's just that unfortunately that's true of most societies and especially Western societies that there's always, there's always a group. There are always people who are somehow on the outside and frequently there is a moment or there are moments where a community will simply decide that one, that one element of that group or one group um, really shouldn't be visible any longer. And either they're made to, stick to the corners um, or as happens a few times in this novel where someone simply doesn't see Nadia, like the conductor on the train doesn't ask for her ticket. It's as if she's not there. Um, So complete has been her removal from society that some folks can't even see her any longer. Yeah. And she also sees herself. um, There's a, there's a a scene where I think this is when she's still in Bordeaux and she goes up to a newsstand and the woman that's working at the counter in the newsstand, she thinks looks exactly like her. And she doesn't want to be seen um, because she's afraid of the reaction of people on the street that would see her, you know, standing in such close proximity to someone that looks like her. I think your point about assimilation is is right on. It's this, it's this horrible struggle that's going on within Nadia of of totally rejecting who she is and, and trying so hard to assimilate um, that it just goes to illogical places like, you know, not being able to say her granddaughter's name, Suhar, and, you know, not having any communication with her parents for 35 years. It's just. And there's, I mean, and at the, at the end of the novel, you know, after she has that last encounter with Noje and he asks about the thing that he put inside of her, um, she does describe, as we already did, you know, when she's undressing one night and this thing, you know, slithers out of her. And at this point, Nadia is no longer obese or or as obese. Um, but she describes the food that she's eating because at this at, at this time she is living with her parents and her granddaughter, um, and sees Ralph when he comes comes in for his rounds. And I mean, his her mother e- even tells her that. Uh, Wilma is got rid of Yasmin uh, and that she shouldn't stay there and don't, don't eat any of the meat that's up there. Um, which just like, my Jesus Christ, like, can we, can we just throw some cannibalism in there? Although I guess if, I guess if you're not actually human, it's Cannibals. not cannibalism, but what the hell? Um, <laughs> but the food that the food that she is eating with her parents is described as a uh, semolina, um, grilled fish, this very, like this, it sounds like a very light Mediterranean dish, clean, 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 clean. And in, I don't, I think it would be a, a misreading to suggest that like, it's saying like she should have stayed in her part of the world, you know, in her part of stayed with her culture or whatever. I think it's, this is more her just reestablishing a connection to her family where she comes from and no longer as she does throughout the, throughout the novel, she refers when Suhar's name comes up, she refers to it as her, uh, as the stain of her bloodline. And it's removing this notion that her bloodline is in any way stained, that there's anything wrong with the people that bore her and the, the community that she came up in. Yeah. Um, well, can I, can I ask, I think you liked the book, right? 
Oh yeah, no, I mean it's it's incredible. I mean it's really good. It's it's also one of the weirdest things I've read in quite a, a long time, which I appreciated. Um, I'll also say it's the kind of book. I think the opening like fifty pages um, are the hardest to get through um, because you're, you're just kind of getting your footing and the atmosphere is so oppressive. Um, but once you get past that point, it really hits its stride and just moves like there's a there's movement there that's really well frankly essential because it gets so strange in parts that it'd be an easy book to put down and maybe walk away from for for quite some time but um no it's it's really brilliant i'm actually curious uh to read some more reviews and some more of the criticism around it because i do think that there's probably quite a bit there but that's also the kind of thing you don't have to like i said like, like we've been saying this whole time there's so many there's so many competing interpretations here, but there should be. That's one of the strengths of of this novel. And what do you think about books that seem to you to have a similar resonance? Yeah, um, comps on this one. Uh, also, just in terms of like you know h- how the sausage gets made. This is the first uh, backlist title that we've done a recording for in almost a month so i feel like almost rusty trying to come up with that but um i certainly think that there are kafka-esque qualities to it especially in the opening um the sense of uh oppressiveness of the town oppressive oppressiveness of the state um that's certainly there um i think avilio rosero's the armies kind of works with this one a little bit very different books but i mean the armies is I would argue a descent into hell, like a movement, like a reverse divine comedy from a paradise to an inferno. I don't think this is quite doing that, but certainly that that sense of society unraveling or how easy it is to be discarded from it and for forces from the outside to really rip things apart. I think that's certainly there. You know, the, the Taiga Syndrome by uh, Christina Rivera Garza, I think it has a similar mood to it. And then just in terms of like, I don't know, body horror-ish slash house horror, uh, You Should Have Left by Danielle Kelman. And really, I, I thought that even before she got to the house, um, that Wilma and Ralph's house at the end, and that house could 100% be the house out of that novella, um, fully capable of trapping you within its walls if it's so desired. Yeah, those kind of jump out at me a bit. How about How about for you? I definitely had the Kafkaesque vibes as well, for sure. Um, two, though, that come to mind for me, um, one I think I've mentioned on the podcast before because it's a book that I absolutely love. It's an open letter title, um, The Chronicle of the Murdered House by uh, Lucio Cardoza. Um, that has a lot of the same kind of weight. Is this is this grotesque? Um, perverse, weird stuff actually happening or or not. Um, and then another one that it, that comes to mind um, is the novel Ahat, which Tin House reissued. I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. It's by a South African author, Marlene Van Nekerk. Totally awesome novel. Um, and has a lot of the, a lot of similar, um, I guess, body horror elements and kind of a, kind of a, a claustrophobic 
kind of atmosphere in terms of, you know, you're kind of captive in this, in this narrow little world that you've unconsciously or inadvertently like created yourself or created yourself. And so the, the walls just kind of keep feeling like they're coming in, um, figurative walls on your life. And there's some nasty characters in a hot too that, um, I wouldn't necessarily, um, want to try to make friends with. So yeah, I think those are, those are the two that, that come to mind for me. Any final words on this one? It's, I mean, it's a phenomenal novel. I really think folks should, should absolutely check this one out. Um, I mean, I, I, I sometimes think that we are doing a uh, subconscious or maybe more conscious job of picking things that speak a little bit to our times. Um, but I also think that good literature simply does that, that it contains it contains all the blueprints you need to apply it to whatever might be going on in the world at any given time. But um, yeah, this this is just this is just a really fascinating, brilliantly written and um, yeah, it's just a stunning novel. I'm really, I'm very glad you uh, you suggested this one. Well, and I'm I'm um, excited and happy that you're you're wanting to check out more of her titles because I think that pretty much everything she does is brilliant. So she's she's well worth looking into, whether it be this book or or one of her others. All right. Well, thanks very much, Lori. Thank you, Tom.